the thing about science is it ought to be able to surprise you. You should go into it and be prepared to say, that's astounding. That's not what we expected to find at all. It doesn't always happen, but it can. And it's a joy when it happens. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, you have quite a few entries that we've talked about related to science, uh, language that gets used in science, language that is worth uh, everybody to know how to use this language. And... Um, a lot of it gets misused. Uh, one of the most critical ones that came up in a New York Times article recently, uh, they had a, a series, a week of misconceptions. People don't understand about science. Right. I read that. Yeah. And one of those was, in science, it's never just a theory. This was written by Carl Zimmer. And it reminded me that you have an entry in the book on the word theory and how it gets used. Right. Um, rather than just go over the, the exact words, I thought I'd explore this a little bit and, and the context in which it's likely to be an issue. Sometimes words have specialized meanings in a profession that they don't in others. And we've talked about some of those before. Um, you know, a builder really needs to know the difference between cement and concrete. But if you're out trying to do something on the patio, you can sweep the concrete or you can sweep the cement. It doesn't make any difference. But it doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong, and it doesn't mean that you always should keep in mind what the technical meaning is. What happens is when people uh, cross over from a speech community that they're comfortable with and where they're they're used to using language in a certain way, and they enter into the territory of a specialist, um, and that happens in various cases. And I think we've talked before about nuclear versus nuclear. Yes. And, you know, uh, their nuclear is so common that it may even be the prevalent pronunciation, but not among scientists and not among people who work with nuclear physics, who, who operate nuclear plants, who plan and design nuclear things. So if you're appearing on a panel with some scientists and experts and you're the protester and you say nuclear, you're going to look like a dummy. Uh, if there are science reporters reporting on your debate, it's just not going to work for you to say nuclear while everybody else is saying nuclear. And a lot of people even can't hear the difference between the two words. So it can be quite challenging. Um, and the one that we were focusing on for today is theory. Now, a theory means different things in different speech communities. Um, people out in the wider world often say things like, that's just a theory. And by saying that, they mean, it's uh, probably not true. Um, and I have a theory about that, then it, it's usually, well, I, I'm guessing here, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Um, theoretically, that might happen. That almost always means, nah, no way that could happen. But, you know, there's a possibility, but it's so remote, it's not worth worrying about. 
So the word theory is pretty weak in normal usage. In science, it's just the reverse. A theory is a developed and usually fairly complex explanation of some phenomenon. And it's something that has a fairly rigorous um, research in back of it. And if you say um, that uh, the theory of gravity put forward by Einstein predicts gravity waves, for instance, he had no evidence for that. It just seemed in his doing the math, and I'm not enough of a physicist to understand it, but he said there should be gravity waves traveling through the universe. And just recently, as uh, even the newspapers reported, uh, that was confirmed. But the theory of gravitation, um, the theory of relativity did not become more of a theory or less of a theory when it was demonstrated to be true, when they were able to do things like put a an atomic clock in orbit and measure the difference in time between how it was taking while the that clock was moving in orbit in relation relative to the clock that remained on Earth. They could say, yeah, that really is. The time is relative. And so in normal things, people would say, well, confirm the theory. Yeah. But scientists will say when they're making an idea that might or might not be a theory that's it's a hypothesis usually well, we've got a notion here that's an idea that we'd like to explore and that would be a hypothesis and then you can develop that into a theory and it needs research and development and there are various ways to do it um, and the scientific theory of evolution is the one where this causes the most problems because People who are against evolutionary theory often attack it by saying, well, it's just a theory. It's not a fact. And that's not the kind of distinction that works in the scientific world. The whole concept of fact is, in fact, <laughs> a very difficult one. And philosophers have been arguing about what is true, what can we know um, do facts exist independent from our thinking about them? You know, there's a whole range of things. The, it's not facts are not as simple as people think they are. So scientists tend to have a much more nuanced understanding of how we understand the world. Now, scientists can be thoughtful. They can also sometimes be sloppy and lapse into popular usage. And so you might have somebody saying, well, evolution is a fact. Yes, well, in both senses of the word, that's true. But they wouldn't distinguish that from its being a theory. Theory means it's a good explanation that has evidence for it, uh, that is useful, that works, that uh, research reflects the validity of um, so they're really people are talking a complete cross purposes when they say evolution is just a theory you can talk about in science that there are facts that we have found 
for instance, many, and just recently, some quite a few more um, transitory fossils that show the evolution from flying winged dinosaur-like beings to feathered birds, and even feathers on some non-flying dinosaurs. And so that whole transition is becoming much more complete. So the theory keeps getting filled in. But in science, there is no such thing as absolute knowledge and say, this is absolutely true. What you, what you say is everything we know is that this is true. Or we can say 98% of all scientists who work in this field agree um, that global warming, classic example as well. Uh, another one that's very hot today in, in both senses of the word. And um, one of the biggest problems is that until recently, not a lot of scientists wanted to speak to the public so they because their speech was so consistently misunderstood, misconstrued and garbled, even sometimes by experienced journalists who were science writers, mm -hmm. that they just would throw up their hands and say, you know, this isn't my audience. I can't talk about this stuff with the public because they just don't even understand the concepts that I'm working with. And that's really unfortunate because scientists have very, very important things to tell us. And it's always nice when somebody like Neil deGrasse Tyson comes along and says, okay, let me sit down and try to explain this for you in words you can understand. I think at the nail on the head when you were talking about the hypothesis, because for better or worse, this is where we start in fourth grade science is uh, they teach you scientific theory and you have a hypothesis and you run a few experiments. You test this detergent versus that detergent or you you soak this in this solution and that and that solution. And you see the results and then you write up what you observed as a conclusion. So you have the hypothesis, you have the experimentation and observation and then you reach a conclusion and in fact the word theory is you wouldn't develop a theory in fourth grade science you would not be that sophisticated right and there's an interesting other twist to it some philosophers of science um, argue and you, you'll run into this fairly frequently not so much from scientists but more from philosophers that the way to prove a theory to test it and then make sure that it's valid is to try to disprove it. So what you do is, well, how can I imagine an experiment that if it turns out successfully would show that this theory that you're putting forward is not true? And fortunately, scientists tend to be pretty highly competitive. And so that makes an open field. I put forward some research. Somebody else says, nah, I don't think that's true. Let me try a, a different approach or a larger sample or something like that. Um, and try to disprove it. Now, some people will argue that you, the only way to prove something in science is through trying to disprove it, that that's too narrow. But um, it's certainly a very important part of science. And no scientist would ever say, I'm offended because you tried to disprove my theory. They would think, great, this is another opportunity for my theory to triumph because somebody's really testing it here. On the other side, the religious people who are arguing for the truth of the biblical story of creation uh, do not take that approach. They never or almost never say, okay, what arguments can I find that would cast any doubt on this account that we read in the Bible? 
And of course, there are a ton of those since the 18th century. People have been noticing that the first and second chapters in Genesis contain two different accounts of creation with a different order for the animals and plants. And not only that, but that God is given a different name in those two, uh, especially if you read in the original. And that discovery in the 18th century was what led to the whole, what used to be called the higher criticism, which is just a a term developed uh, mostly in Germany to begin with, analyzing uh, the biblical text to see how did it actually evolve. Let's not assume that it's perfect and created by God, but that it evolved out of human effort. Now, what can we find here? Why does it say in the Bible, for instance, that sometimes that uh, Noah took uh, seven pairs of all the clean animals on the ark and other places it seems to imply, no, it was two and two for all the animals? Um, well, because it's pretty clear that there are two different um, flood stories that are blended together in the biblical text. Now, that's the sort of thing that would be looked at long and hard in the world of science. Now, even if a scientist has got a pet theory that they are clinging to, um, they don't themselves have to be the doubters. They can always have somebody else. Like many years ago, there were a couple of guys who, who thought they'd come up with cool fusion. And they thought this would be the end of all our problems if we could produce fusion without superheating the gases that we're working with. And um, that would be terrific. And it got a lot of publicity. People were putting out all kinds of information about it. Fortunately, it was pre-Twitter and pre-Internet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was all over. Everybody was talking about it. It was bad enough as it was, yeah. Yeah, and but other scientists say, okay, we'll try to see if we can replicate their findings and uh, do the same thing in the lab and see if it works for us. No, nobody nobody could make cold fusion work, and it was a, a ludicrous idea to begin with. But these kinds of things pop up all the time, and the most recent one, being the the whole theory that vaccination causes autism, and um, that has been so thoroughly disbunked. It's been tested and tested and tried and and so on. But people have these beliefs. They're so desperate to have an explanation, something you could actually do that would prevent autism, that they keep clinging to it. And unfortunately, it's often very well educated and very well to do and influential people who are the most enamored of some of these bogus ideas and uh, will not accept um, scientific notions. The way politicians have dealt with this in recent years, especially with climate science, is to just preface everything they say, well, I'm not a scientist, but. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of uh, trying to appeal to a certain kind of snobbishness that's common in American politics. Uh, There's populism and say, well, there's these eggheads that think they know everything, but the common people, they have sense. They really know what is. Then there's this tremendous clash between this just listen to your gut and what feels good, that must be true in science where it's often, boy, that doesn't make sense at all. And you may not even like it. Uh, like There were certain uh, aspects of indeterminacy that Einstein didn't like one bit and fought against most of his life, all his life. Um, but uh, they prevailed despite him. So science doesn't work by popular vote of just people who have heard about it. It's people who actually work in the field. I've run into uh, anti-evolution types who will say, well, I've got a list here, 1,000 biologists, 
all of whom uh, say they believe in biblical creation. You look at their list, and it's almost exclusively made up of high school teachers at religious schools and elementary biology classes and people like that, or people who went to religious schools and studied biology in a Christian context just in order to do this. The thing about science is it ought to be able to surprise you. You should go into it and be prepared to say, that's astounding. That's not what we expected to find at all. It doesn't always happen, but it can, and it's a joy when it happens. However, if you think you know the meaning of a biblical text, the last thing you want to do if you belong to a faith community that already has a given interpretation is to say, well, you know, I think this text really says something different from what we've been saying for the last 2,000 years. It's a totally different way of thinking. Most of the times when you hear a politician say, I'm no scientist, but uh, in the very next sentence, there will be something that is an affront to even the most basic understanding of what science says. It's almost like they're not even talking on the same topic. Right, like the senator that brought a snowball into the halls of Congress to prove that there was no global warming. Right, and this plays right into it. Let's talk about a language usage thing, climate and weather. Right. And that really is where climate change discussion begins. It's with the word climate, right? not with the word weather. The yes. weather changes every day. <laughs> exactly. Weather is local and weather is temporary and short range. Climate is a much longer range kind of thing. There's nothing about the everyday weather that should surprise anybody. Well, it can be surprising, but not um, contradict the overall theory. The long-term trends are, are very scary. The polar ice cap melting, um, sea level rising, and other things. So last year was the warmest year on record, and it just keeps happening and happening and happening. Here in the Pacific Northwest, where we're used to kind of cold and rainy summers um, sometimes, it's been lovely, <laughs> although we had a, a terrible drought in July and August. But our local garden tour it has been held for many, many years in July. And they've had to move it to June this year because it's just getting too, the garden's getting too dried out and hot and the flowers are gone um, by mid-July when they used to do it. But we don't rely on that kind of data. There's much more data. I had a debate with one of these fundamentalist preachers years ago who was um, brought by a campus religious group to Washington State University where I was a young professor. This was about 35 years ago. And um, he was arguing for uh, a young Earth, and the young Earth hypothesis goes anywhere from the Earth was created 6,000 years ago. Sometimes they'll go back as far as 10,000, based on the genealogies in the Bible and so on. And, of course, it's just absurdly short from everything there. You can't do modern science without running up against time limits. But I use some of the common things. Well, one of the first things he said, what goes in this, it's only a theory idea. Is the scientists just have faith in their ideas. They just believe them without really hard evidence. And he used the example of the atom. He said, nobody's ever seen an atom. And I said, did you see the latest issue of Scientific American? They had a scanning electron microscope photograph of a carbon atom. 
in it? No, because, of course, he doesn't read that kind of thing, and he wasn't paying any attention to what's actually happening in science. He just had this, these notions of what scientists are like. But then I pointed out, and this is a common argument that's used, to look up in the sky, okay? We know the speed of light. How far can you see with the naked eye? Well, you can see hundreds of thousands of miles away. You can see, uh, and you get the right conditions. In really good eyes, you can actually make out other galaxies. And um, it takes hundreds of thousands of years and even millions in some cases get a telescope and it's much much more for the light to travel to you so what you're doing is looking into the past so you can actually see the past you can see way beyond four thousand six thousand ten thousand years um in direct eyesight now they've come up with all kinds of lame explanations of justifying this like god wanted us all to enjoy the stars Right away, so he created this beam of light, even though there was no star to emit it, on its way to us, which is silly. Why not just sprinkle the stars nearer to us? <laughs> well, that's a good question, but if there is a, an all-powerful God that created all of this, the conversation can begin and end right there, because if it's an all-powerful God that can really do anything, any all kinds of magic, and did a whole bunch of stuff 6,000 years ago, not that there's a lot of evidence that any sort of magical other things have happened in the time, in the interim time, uh, that sort of shuts down the whole conversation right there. When you're talking to one of these guys, I feel it's sort of like being a little kid and asking, why? And the parents saying, because I said so. <laughs> yeah. Only they say, because the Bible said so. The thing about science is it's this journey of discovery, and you're always learning things, some of the things very unexpected and surprising and wonderful um, in genetics, and, and it's it's really interesting. I was just watching a documentary on Alzheimer's on NOVA the other day, and they were talking about a lot of scientific research has gone into the attacking the plaques in the brain that accumulate in Alzheimer's patients. But as they've gone on, they found that actually the plaques are important, but the real damaging thing are the tangles that, that happen in the nerves, and that takes different medicines. So a whole generation of scholars have worked on one aspect of it. Now it's come out that we need to also move to a different level and do something different. Now let's focus on the tangles for a while, or at least you do that, I'll do this. That sort of discovery just doesn't happen in fundamentalist religious beliefs. The other one that really fascinated me about this dating thing, though, was seafloor spreading. And the reversals of the Earth's magnetic field, for some reason, every half million years or so, the North magnetic pole becomes the South magnetic pole and vice versa. It's not that the Earth flips around. It's just like if you had a compass, it would just go in 180 degrees. And it's sometimes very gradual over a very long period of years. Uh, one reversal is thought to have been fairly uh, short and the way we know about this is from studying the iron in the lava that oozes up in the seafloor where it spreads apart where the tectonic plates are being created or they're coming out and you can check the metals that are trapped in that lava that creates the seafloor um, for what kind of magnetic orientation it had when it oozed out of the earth 
And that's how it was discovered. They say, wow, you go so many inches. We know the rate at which this stuff is oozing out. And that gives us a timeline. And so we know there have been at least three of these flips within the time um, that we have records up from the rocks. And they've done some more elegant experiments to get even further than that. So that's like there's a stopwatch running. That is actually telling you, okay, this is a matter of millions of years, not tens of thousands of years. I brought that up in the debate, and of course, he'd never even heard of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that lack of curiosity, where can I find something that either scientists disagree about or that they don't know? And then pretend that's the essence of science, which is like, uh, you know, Somebody writing to me and said, boy, you just made a terrible mistake and something you posted on Facebook. You're no expert on usage. <laughs> That's a, oh, yeah, of course, occasionally. Um, I think I do know a great deal, nevertheless. Yeah. Well, and it would be an affront, too, to say, you know, I'm no theologian, but and then to try to interject my own ideas about the history of the Catholic religion or or so- something that's developed over a lengthy period of time, and uh, I'm sure my comments wouldn't be welcome there either. Well, you can never tell. I mean, there's a, a lot of open areas. Certainly saying, I have just received a divine revelation that contradicts your divine revelation <laughs> is very off-base, whereas with the scientist saying to another one, I've got a theory that really flatly contradicts and disproves your theory. It may make me mad, but then it makes me go back to the lab. <laughs> See, is that guy right? Yes. <laughs> Whereas in religion, you just say, oh, you are crazy. You're inspired by the devil. You're, <laughs> it's, it's just a different kind of discourse altogether. Well, can we end with running down this list of these interesting things? Um, we'll just give the quick gloss on the week of misconceptions that was posted in the New York Times with all this talk about science. I'm interested to see what else they had to say. Uh, Of course, one of them, we just ran it down pretty thoroughly. Uh, In science, it's never just a theory. They had another one. There's a misconception that the universe started someplace. And this is a little beyond me, but the idea is the Big Bang did not happen at a place. It happened at a time. Well, and it's also argued that in a way it didn't happen at a time either, that both time and matter and space itself appeared in the moment of the singularity at the beginning. Um, Of course, the skeptics all say, well, what happened before the beginning? Well, we've gotten an awful lot so far. Let's not jump too far. Of course, we'd love to know what happened before the beginning. But yeah, St. Augustine struggled with the time issue of this. He said, if God is eternal, then why after these forever and ever and ever did he decide, okay, now it's time to begin the earth? And then a little later decide, okay, now it's time to end the earth and go back to being eternal in the experience of, of human beings. And that it just seemed to make all of existence irrelevant. And he said, well, actually, I think what was created when God did the creation was not only the universe, but time. And that's sort of what scientists are saying today as well. Uh, Another misconception 
that they posted was computers will outstrip human capabilities within many of our lifetimes. And, uh, you know, I'm not even sure that this is a common misconception. Some people probably do actually believe that computers are going to become so sophisticated that humans will become uh, irrelevant or completely duplicated by the world of machinery. Right. Uh, seems a pretty long way off to me. This is one that some of the scientists worry about. Stephen Hawking is worried about it. And um, it's just it's too huge and complex to really explore here. But people often confuse different abilities. The ability to um, sort through possibilities very, very fast and choose optimal ones makes a better chess playing machine. The outcome may beat a human chess player, but it doesn't duplicate what's going on in a chess player's brain. Um, it's, um, you know, like you can sit down with a pencil and paper and figure out pi to a million places if you had enough pencils and paper and enough time, and a computer can do that much, much faster. But it doesn't mean it's better than you. That these are questions of value, which really are more philosophical than scientific. I think the big question is, are the robots going to take over the world? You know, Isaac Asimov imagined a future in which the human race would be so overshadowed by its robots that they would just banish them and there would be no robots anymore. And I thought, that's, that's pretty cowardly way to think about it and i don't think possible either yeah and uh well, you're right it is too complicated to get into here but suffice to say that a complete makeover of humans as machines would require a lot more capability in the world of machines and computing than we currently have in our grasp for a long long time yeah yeah for a long time uh Paul, let's wrap this up, and thank you for all this interesting uh, conversation about theory, what it is. Of course, commonly we talk about it one way, but it's worth exploring everything that the scientific community means by that word and what the scientific community is doing in general. Thank you, Paul. We'll see you. Right. Thank you, Tom. So long. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.